All right, I hope you have a copy of God's Word. If you do, uh, if you got a Bible, turn in your Bible, or if uh, you're of a different generation, turn on your Bible uh, and join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, uh, where we're going to look at a passage uh, starting in verse 32 and going through verse 43. It'll be on the screens, but I do want to encourage you that if you've got a copy of the Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. Uh, or uh, maybe go ahead and, and find it on your smartphone and that way you can bookmark it and, and go back and look at this passage again later on. In Luke chapter 23, we come to this place where uh, Jesus is being led away to be crucified. And, and obviously, as, as this is now the, going to begin, the, the, the beginning of what has been known as the Passion Week, this last week of Jesus's uh, earthly ministry and life before his crucifixion. On Good Friday, uh, I know you guys are going to have a service where you'll gather together to specifically uh, take a moment uh, in, in this week to think very uh, poignantly and pointedly about the crucifixion of Christ. But as uh, Brent has been leading you as a church family through this idea of encounters with Jesus, there's one particular encounter that happens here in this particular passage uh, with someone that we probably don't want to feel like we have a whole lot in common with, but we might have a whole lot more in common with than we think, and that is the thief on the cross. And so in Luke 23, if you start looking around about verse 26, this is when they're leading him off to be crucified, and he's... He's having to bear the weight of the beam uh, upon which he will be crucified. And they, they grab a man out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and they, uh, they force him to carry it uh, the rest of the way uh, up, up onto the hill of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. But then I want you to pick up in verse 32 with me. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, which uh, in, if you ever get an opportunity to, to, to look up one of the pictures of Calvary's Hill or it's known as Golgotha or this place of the skull, the reason it's, it's called that is because on this little mound outside of, of the city, there's actually the indentations that look like two eye sockets and a nose socket. That's why they called it the place of the skull. It's, it's very odd. Now in, in modern day, it's actually the base of this hill is actually a bus stop. And all the exhaust fumes from all of these years, over, uh, for over these years, have, have dirtied up those, those impressions. And it really does, uh, from a distance, look like a skull. It says they crucified him. There, uh, the place that is called the school, skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged 
railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Pause for a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord to, to teach us through his word. Father, it is with great humility that we come before you. We are so glad to be able to sing your praises of how on the cross justice and mercy did meet. That it was at this place that your wrath is poured out on Christ for our sin. And he has extended this great mercy to us that we might, with childlike faith, find salvation in him. Lord, as we look into this passage this morning, we pray you will teach us, that you will change us, that you will cause us to understand you more deeply. Lord, grow our faith so that we might fully invest our entire life in the cause of the gospel. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. My wife Angie is with me this morning. We uh, live in Nashville, Tennessee, and obviously it's been a pretty terrible week for our city. Uh, But it's been a pretty terrible week all over with storms, uh, with sacrifices, with people with the loss of life in all sorts of places. And, And it always just constantly is a reminder to us of the fragility of this life that we live. That at any moment there can be tragedy, there can be a tornado, uh, there can be upheaval and chaos in your life. We all know that, whether it is in the mass dramas that we see of everybody uh, experience the chaos and the tragedy all at once, or whether it's in your life in particular because everything sprung loose and you don't know if you're if your business is going to make it another week, if, there's, uh, if your friendship is going to come flying apart, if your marriage is going to survive one more argument, if your kids are going to stay or if they're going to go. Uh, we all encounter these harsh, rough parts of life. And, and it is in these moments that we need to cling ever the more to the mercy that is extended by God. As I think about these encounters that happen in this passage, you can trace it through really the dialogue that happens of people who have the opportunity to embrace and be embraced by the mercy of God or people who are just going to uh, very harshly walk away from it. People who are going to say, well, it just doesn't really matter that much to me in this moment. I think I'll just you know, choose to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, which seems to be theoretically impossible if I was a physicist, but who am I to go against the old sayings that we live by? As I think about my own city, Nashville, and I start thinking about maybe the greater metropolitan area uh, that is Cincinnati, just to the, the south of you and the, and the city that you live in here, 
I begin to think about who our neighbors really are and how might we find them represented in the passage today. But even more so, how is it that we might find ourselves? Uh, I do want you to walk with me through this passage and, and, and see who it is that says what and how it is at the end that Christ comes to this great encounter with this dying thief on the cross. Let me begin by just pointing out first and foremost the desire of Christ that we see in this passage. In verses 32, 33, and 34 it says that they lead Jesus out to be crucified with these two criminals and they take him and they crucify him and certainly here in the Gospel of Luke it all happens so very quickly and it says and they crucified him which was not exactly a really quick process to take place. Now the Romans had perfected this manner of execution which was this torturous death where these large spikes are driven through the wrists and the ankles. Uh, the knees are bent at such an angle so that it would prolong a person's death on the cross. And, and on the cross uh, during crucifixion you didn't die from blood loss or even exposure. You died from suffocation. Because of the way that you were hung, it, it, it would constrict up your diaphragm up towards your lungs. And, and the person would actually have to stand up on the spike that was driven through their ankle in order to expand their lungs to get a breath. Which makes this whole passage all the more dramatic as to the conversation that winds up happening. But here they've crucified Jesus and you, you hear his desire when he says there in verse 34... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, the very authorities that take Jesus to Golgotha and nail him to this cross, Jesus is desirous that they would find forgiveness. The very forgiveness that he is sacrificing his life for. Jesus desires to be the sacrifice. He desires for you and I to find forgiveness. And the beauty is that in the crucifixion of Christ, God is executing your death. This is what he's busy doing. He is going to execute the eternal death that you and I deserve for our sins. He is going to be the spotless lamb, the, the lamb without blemish. It, it was at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry that John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the road and he exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the place where God's faithfulness is on display in the person of Christ. That even as he is in this moment of painful execution, he cries out to the Father in heaven, forgive them. They don't even have a clue as to what's going on. Maybe that's where you and I are today. We know that God wants a redeemed and renewed and restored relationship and we are just absolutely clueless about it. And here is your moment to check in to the conversation. To say here is Christ hanging and dying, paying the price for the penalty of all of our sin. And he has this great desire that you would know the forgiveness of God. The second thing I'd point out to you about this passage is the rejection by man. We see this in verses 35 through 39. 
In verse 35, it says that the, the people stood by just watching. I mean, they're just all spectating at this point. There was a giant spectacle that happened on a pretty regular basis outside of, of uh, Roman-held and Roman-occupied uh, cities where uh, the worst of all criminals would be crucified. And it says, though, in verse 35, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, well, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. I mean, here they are, the, the idea that they're just like, we can't even believe that this guy thinks that this is true. And this is the norm of the world in which we live, is that you have the rulers scoffing at it. Then in verses 36 and 37, you have the soldiers mocking him. The soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine. This was they would, they would put some kind of sour wine mixture onto a sponge and then put it on a stick and they'd raise it up high into the air to the criminal that was being crucified. It was actually uh, to try to awaken his senses, to prolong this torture that was going on. And, and so they, they thought, well, let's just play this thing out. And, and again, they say... Well, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. You know, come on, if you think that you're really something to behold. And then it says there in verse 38 that there was an inscription, some kind of plaque was hung up on the cross above him that said, this is the king of the Jews. This is, uh, this is where Jesus just gets parodied, you know, to everybody who's watching. Look, here's your king. It is crazy that, that here is the Christ the perfect one who is being scoffed at and mocked and parodied, but then it gets even worse. That There you see in verse 39 that one of the criminals that's hung there with him, that's being crucified right beside him, and it says that he railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That little word there, railed at him. It is the only time that this Greek word, uh, the New Testament, originally written in common language of Greek, it's the only time that that Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. And, and it is the Greek word from which we get our English word, blasphemy. It, 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 in fact, uh, the word blasphemy is not really a translation of that Greek word. It's what is uh, technically known as a transliteration. They just took the Greek letters and applied English letters to it. It's blasphemo. It is this idea, and railed against him is a really you know, great kind of picture, that it's almost like this screaming at him. It, it is this absolute doubt that he is anything of what he has said that he is. Like, come on, man. If you really think that you're that, like, how dare you have lived the way that you have and taught the way that you have? How dare you have said all of these things to all these people about how you've been sent from God and, and you're some kind of magic man who's pranced across the, the, the Jerusalem countryside to do all of these things? But I want you to know that this rejection by humanity, I want you to tie it back to something that happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Notice that the rulers say in verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers say in verse 36, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The criminal says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
Does that remind you of anything? Can you rewind the tape to where Jesus was just beginning to get ready to move out into his public ministry and he goes into the desert, into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights and at the end of it, Satan comes to tempt him and Satan says, well, if you're hungry, why don't you feed yourself? Turn all of these stones into bread. And Jesus replies with scripture, man will not live by anything but by the word of God. And he says, okay, well, then why don't you go up to the spire to the, to the height of the temple and throw yourself off because the scripture says that the, the angels won't let you even stub your toe. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 I, I don't think you understand. I'm not supposed to test the Lord our God. And, and then Satan, the third temptation, he says, well, how about this? Why don't you bow down to me and I'll give you power over all the nations of the world. In, in all of those three temptations, Satan is saying, Jesus, you don't have to do this whole death thing for these humans. Instead, make life easier for yourself. Save yourself. The same temptation had always been in front of Jesus, that he would, pervert, he would preserve himself rather than preserve us. And the world carries that attitude toward Jesus so often that they scoff and they mock and they blaspheme saying, you know what, we're not even so sure that this guy is who he says he is. Maybe he should just mind his own business. And we find that still happening today. It is not just something that I would say is kind of anecdotally true. It's like statistically true. Right now in the United States of America, the population of the whole U.S., 64% of everyone who lives in the United States of America, if you ask them, what kind of religious person are you? They will say, I'm a Christian. Now, that number has been slowly on the decline over the last few decades. So only 64% of people in the U.S. would say, I'm a Christian. The other statistic that's important to know is the one that's been on the incline, and it's 30%. 30% of people in the United States of America, your neighbors and mine, when you ask them, what is your religious affiliation, they say, none. I have none. I'm not Christian. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Baha'i. I'm not anything. I have no religious affiliation. I don't care. And they look at these stories of Christ and his death on the cross and they have just decided, well, this just really doesn't matter very much. It doesn't mean anything. How could it possibly be true? So here's what I want you to come at this passage with is that you don't need to to be surprised but we can grieve we don't need to be dismayed and give up hope but we can be activated to see that Christ is here on the cross dying for the sins of the world even those who say I don't know what to do with just with this Jesus I'm not so sure that he's the real deal that we live out a witness and we bear a verbal witness so that the people who are outside of a saving faith with Christ would come to encounter him, would come to understand and know who he truly is. But that we've got to understand that unbelief and mocking and scoffing, that might be the standard operating procedure of the world, but it is, this, it is these people for whom Christ has died. That he has come for the vilest offender. He has come for the worst rejecter. He has come for all of these. It is before they say anything, it is Jesus who has said, 
Father, forgive these numbskulls because they don't know what they're doing. The third part of the conversation I would point you to, the, the desire of Christ, the rejection by man. The third is the cry of faith. Look at verses 40 through 42 as the other criminal says, but the other one rebuked him. One criminal rebukes another. Are you not? He's, he's, I think that he's just got to be beside himself at this point. Like, are you crazy? Do you, do you not understand who you're talking to? He says, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly? For we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This second criminal has a true fear of God. He has a confessional spirit. And he cries out in, in faith. He cries out for hope. He is crying out for help. This is a man who is desperate for a savior. This is a man who needs an answer and he cannot wait any longer. His time is short for sure. He is there and there is no coming off the cross. There's no one who's going to give a stay of execution. There's no one coming to save him. He is desperate. And I love the fact that as we look through all of Scripture, that what we find is that the cry of faith is always answered by the Savior. The cry of the desperate is always answered by God, even the worst of all of the offenders. Now, you all look like very nice people put together, you all dressed up, came to church, got yourself up, got yourself going, got yourself moving, had... You know, some of you had enough coffee to where, you know, you're seeing sounds and hearing colors at this point, but you're here. You know, we appreciate it. But no doubt, there's at least one person in the room, and my suspicion is more than one, that way down deep in the, in the corner of your heart where you have closed it off to everybody else, you have decided, sure, Jesus can save, but not me. Too many addictions, too many bad choices, too many affairs, too much anger, too many times I have rejected people who love me, I've done too much thieving, too much stealing, too much undermining, I'm too bitter, I'm too far gone, my heart is way too dark. And here, here in, in, the, in the last vestiges of this guy's life, this final encounter that he could possibly have, right, he just reaches out in faith, hoping against hope. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, this is the most generic and vague confession of faith possible where he just says Jesus whose name means that God saves 
He says, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Whenever that is, somewhere in the future, I, I think that you really are who I've heard you say that you say that you are and who if people have talked about who you are and that you do have some kingdom out there in the spiritual eternal realm. And so would it poss be possible that you would just have some inkling of a memory about me when you come into your kingdom. And there are some of you in this room that like this guy or the woman who when Jesus was passing through a crowd and she had a medical condition that had plagued her for years just said to herself, if I could just reach out and touch the hem, just the trailing part of his, of his garment, of his robe, then I could be healed because he has so much power. Or the people who stand at a distance and they look and they, they wonder, is this really the Christ, is this really the one who can change me? And here is this dying thief on the cross that he says, if there's just some possible way that you would have a vague memory of me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, just please let that be the case. And this cry of desperation from his heart might be the cry of desperation from your heart. That, that you finally recognize that if, if God can change the lives of all of what we call the saints of the Bible who are all broken and busted and messed up and their lives were in the muck and the mire just like yours, they had jacked up everything just like we jack up everything in our life, that if this guy in, in moments before he's going to die could make a confession that Jesus would respond to maybe, just maybe, that could be the same for you. That in your hour of desperation, that know that Jesus is not just hanging out to the side, wondering, and maybe he's going to respond, but that Jesus will respond to the cry of faith. Because what we see finally is the salvation given by Christ Jesus is the one who owns salvation. He gives it away. It is important for you and I to remember that this, the scripture speaks about that we can take joy in his salvation. Salvation is not something that you and I own, that we go and we seize a hold of from God and we wrench it from his hands or somehow he's holding it in trust for us uh, and, we, and we go and we get it from him. It is his salvation to give as generously and liberally as we could possibly imagine and that he delights in giving away salvation to those who will cry to him in faith and in the hope that he really is the God who saves. And Jesus says to this guy, in the most unlikely of circumstances for an evangelism meeting to break out, there on the cross, on ver in verse 43, Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The salvation that comes from Christ is immediate. He says, truly, Today, this will happen. There is a certainty in the words of Jesus. It, it, there, of all the vagaries that are in the cry of desperation from the thief on the cross, there is absolute immediacy and certainty in the statement by Jesus. 
The thief is just like, if you can just somehow remember me whenever it is in the, in the future tense of existence that you get into your kingdom, that would be awesome. And Jesus responds, I'm telling you with absolute certainty, today it's going to happen. I don't know that there's anything in our lives that carry that much certainty. I mean, it doesn't in my work. I mean, as Brent said, I, I work in publishing. I, I work in Bible publishing. It's a really cool gig if you can get it to wake up every day and think about how do we get more Bibles into the world. But if you're in business, you're in the same kind of boat I am. You drown in a sea of Excel spreadsheets on a daily basis. You deal with uh, an up, you know, a tumultuous supply chain around the world. Uh, every day I'm wondering about you know, the price of leather and the price of paper and inventory management and working on P&Ls and profit and loss statements and uh, are, are we driving top line revenue to bottom line revenue while I'm thinking about what's the next great study Bible, you know, that needs to be ideated and published. And our lives are filled with this uncertainty. If it's going to work out, will it work out? What's going to happen next? Everything's going really well, which makes me really suspicious that something bad is about to happen. And here is Christ hanging on the cross next to a criminal saying, let me just tell you that this is not something that may happen, might happen, could happen somewhere in the future, that this is immediately going to happen, that today you will be with me in paradise. But it's not just immediate, it's personal. Even those of us who have been in church for a long time, and I, I'm one of those that I was in church nine months before I was born. You know, my parents, like uh, I was on what was called the cradle roll, that as soon as my mom knew that she was pregnant, that my name went on a cradle roll at our church in Birmingham where it was Baby Nation. Like I was already, I mean, they were already counting me present, I guess. <laughs> and so I, I've, I've been one of those blessed people that I've been in church my whole life. And yet, still to this day, because of the frailty of our flesh and the fact that we, we have to work at, at growing up in our faith, there are times when I just wonder, do I really mean that much to God? Like, is he really paying attention that much to my life? And yet, look at how Jesus speaks, how he encounters this thief where he says, truly today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, certainly you are going to find yourself in a really cool space later on today. He says, you're going to be with me in paradise. If you will jump over with me in the scriptures, if you've got your Bibles open, to the next book of the Bible. So we're in Luke. If you go over to the Gospel of John, I want to show you two places where this shows up again as I began to kind of wrap this up. In John chapter 14, Jesus is moving through this teaching about how he is the way and the truth and the life. And he says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that, that I go and prepare a place for you. And I want you to look at John 14, 3. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then if you turn over a couple of pages or a couple of chapters to chapter 17, Chapter 17 is the lengthiest prayer that we have from Jesus recorded in Scripture. The whole chapter is a prayer from Jesus, where the first part is Jesus praying for himself, the second part is Jesus praying for the apostles that are living at the moment, and the last part of the chapter is about Jesus praying for everybody else in human history, you and me, that would follow after him. But in John chapter 17, verse 3, is Jesus' definition of the eternal life that we inherit from his salvation. It says, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Look, I am so happy that heaven is there, streets of gold, gates of pearl, walls made out of precious jewels, no need of a sun because... That God himself, his glory, illuminates the city. There's no more night. There's no more hunger. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. I am so happy for all of that. What, what we can rejoice in even more is not just that Jesus is preparing a cool place for us, but that Jesus is drawing us to himself for an eternal fellowship with God the creator, the sustainer, the one who is omnipotent and omnipresent and eternal and holds all knowledge, all truth, all power for all of eternity, that Jesus says to the dying thief on the cross, and he says to you and I, my salvation is not something just theoretical, it's not just something theological, it's not just a a cool destination in eternity, but my salvation is personal, that you will be with me in paradise. That that I want you to be where I am. I'm coming to get you so that you'll be with me. Jesus is not interested in just having an, an anonymous, nameless throngs of people in heaven crying out his praises for all of eternity. He is interested in you knowing him and him knowing you of reestablishing the fellowship that was broken by our sinfulness. The relationship is undeserved, it is imbalanced, but he is faithful to the end that he wants you to know him in this personal manner for all of eternity. It is absolutely a complete salvation that Jesus offers where he says, you will be with me in paradise, eternal, sealed, nothing else is needed but this, that Jesus is the one who flings open the doors and ushers you in. This encounter that happens with Jesus. That he has this desire for us all to be saved. That he has, he he understands that there's going to be a rejection, a scoffing, and a mocking by unbelievers. But that you and I can take hope that Jesus is interested in saving even them. Even us, when we stand in that position of being a skeptic and a doubter. And that it is just a cry of absolute faith and desperation that you and I can have. That Jesus will immediately, completely, and personally respond to. So that you and I might be like that thief on the cross. Knowing that we are the offenders. That this 
thief said, don't you get it? We are justly being executed for our misdeeds, for our criminal activity. And this guy has done nothing wrong. So will you, Jesus, remember me? And maybe today that is the cry from your heart. Jesus, would you just, would you just remember me? Knowing that he is so faithful and so good. What I come to the conclusion of in the passage like this, when I think about Jesus hanging there on the cross, is that Jesus is the true and better thief. That he is the one who enters our lives and plunders away our sin debt. He is the one who storms the gates of darkness and steals us away, taking us into the light taking us into his life, that he is the one who makes all of the difference because he takes upon himself the very sin debt of my life and of yours. Waiting, happily, joyfully fulfilling the will of the Father that if we would just cry to him as desperate people of faith, Jesus And with that word, he answers, saying, come and be with me. I want to encourage you today that if you find yourself in a position where you know a lot about religious stuff or a little about religious stuff, that Jesus does not care. What he cares is that you recognize your need for salvation, your need for eternal life, your need to turn away from darkness and selfishness and self-aggrandizement and self-preservation. Stop trying to make your way and remember that the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. It is not a staircase. It is not a rope to climb. It is not a tower to build, but it is a cross upon which Christ has died. That is the way that Jesus has made. And if you will trust in his sacrifice for your sinfulness and his power that he has risen from the dead, alive and ruling in the heavenlies, and cry out to him in desperate faith that he is the God of heaven who answers and who draws and who loves for you to be with him. Let's pray together. Father, I am so very grateful for your word that gives us every assurance that you are at work drawing men and women and teenagers to yourselves, that you have a desire for us to put our faith in you. And I want to just ask that in this day that you would cause us to see you clearly as the God who saves, the God who loves to bring salvation to the vilest offender, to the one who is farthest from the truth, That, Lord, that you are so consumed with with glory that, that we, as we look to you, we can behold what it is that mercy really, truly might be. That it is so much greater, so much more expansive than we could ever imagine. God, that you would be so kind as to shower it upon us today. Lord, I ask that you would be glorified as we turn our hearts to you, as we turn away from our selfishness and our ambitions, as we turn away from trying to make it on our own, 
God, that you would find honor and glory as we put our faith in you and trust you for every moment of our existence, every trouble that we encounter, but most of all that we entrust to you the salvation of our souls. Lord, would you meet us at these points of need and help us to see how you care for us in such a multitude of ways, and we will thank you a billion times over. For it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Would you stand along with me? Our worship team is going to lead us in one more song of encouragement for us to worship. But I do want to just call out to those of you that you think you need prayer or questions answered. As soon as the service is concluded, Brent and I and uh, will be here at the front. Uh, you can find us maybe in the lobby. But make sure that you don't walk away from this place with unanswered questions but that you find your hope in Christ, that you find answers from God's word, that you find your salvation in Jesus.